0: From 89.7 WUWN, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll explore the impact a recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling is having on wetlands protection. Losing
1: even fragments of wetlands in an urban area can have major impacts on the communities that are experiencing intense rainfall.
0: Capital Notes looks at the GOP's plan for funding the Brewers Stadium. Plus, a NASA astrophysicist shares discoveries made by largely overlooked women.
2: The idea that the scale of the universe and and someone like like Hubble, we all think about the, the expansion of the universe being discovered by Edwin Hubble, but he wouldn't have been able to do that without the groundwork of these women.
0: All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. A recent ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court severely diminishes federal protections for wetlands. The Sackett v. EPA ruling will affect a majority of the country's wetlands, including here in Wisconsin. WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz speaks with water policy expert Melissa Scanlon about the impact of the ruling. You'll hear first from water policy specialist Rajpreet Graywall, who explains what wetlands can do.
3: They provide a lot of vital functions, so they store and retain storm and flood water. They filter and store sediments, nutrients, and toxic substances. They provide protections against shoreline erosion and are habitat for wildlife and fish. Um, Wisconsin has already lost almost half of its pre-settlement wetlands, so making the ones remaining that much more important to protect. A major concern in Wisconsin is flooding, um, especially increased flooding given the more frequent and intense storms that we've been experiencing. Um, We also see with climate models that intense rains and flooding will be a bigger risk for urban areas. Wetlands, they act as a natural sponge for that storm water and flood water. Um, and the DNR has documented that wetlands can reduce that peak flooding by as much as 60%. Um, the U.S. EPA also estimates that an acre of wetlands can usually store about a million gallons of flood water, so making those wetlands very vital.
4: Melissa, let's go back to the policy side. So we saw a shift in state policy in more recent years.
1: Yes, so effective 2018 the legislature created exemptions for non-federal wetlands. So the exemptions are limited to um, projects that are less than one acre in an urban area and less than three acres in an agricultural area. And they have some other features to to being able to get the exemption as well. And cumulatively, These could be big problems for urban areas especially uh, that are trying to prevent flooding because as you just heard one acre of wetlands can absorb up to a million gallons of water during a potential flooding event so losing even fragments of wetlands in an urban area and in urbanizing areas can have major impacts on the um, communities that are experiencing intense rainfall. The concern now with the Sackett decision is that many more acres of wetlands are going to lose federal protections. We do have an early estimate from the US EPA on what they're projecting the impact of the Sackett ruling to be, and they're saying that um, They estimate 63% of acres of wetlands across the entire country will lose federal jurisdiction or have lost Mm -hmm. federal
4: jurisdiction Mm -hmm. at this point. Am I right that the Sackett rule, the U.S. Supreme Court, the judges got into WOTUS? That's been a point of controversy or discussion for years, right? Explain what WOTUS is about and what it's supposed to do because it is related to all this, right?
1: The Clean Water Act provides protections for what is defined as waters of the United States. Congress created the Clean Water Act, um, established jurisdiction over all waters of the United States. Mm -hmm. You would think that with um, a statute like that, maybe that would answer the question. But no, it's really only opened up many questions and controversies over the decades about what is included in this term, Waters of the United States. And there's been a lot of line drawing about this, especially related to wetlands because um, there are powerful lobbying interests that want to be able to fill wetlands without regulations. Now what we have with The Sackett decision is now the 2023 version of this new definition of what is covered by waters of the United States. And what we're seeing is that federal jurisdiction is shrinking because of the Supreme Court ruling and the um, EPA and the Corps of Engineers, their ability to implement this program has now been limited by this ruling of the Supreme Court. Is
4: there data out there that um, underscores the concerns about flooding and the impacts that this new ruling would have?
3: One thing we're really concerned about are flood-related damages. Back in 2019, it's estimated that there were $2.3 billion of damages um, from flood-related events. Now, in 2023, it's estimated so far this year that there's a $250 million to $500 million estimate for damages for flood-related events. And we're concerned that that's just going to increase and be a burden to communities and municipalities. And the other piece of this is thinking about the
1: investments that public entities have been making to protect wetlands. And, um, you know, we're here in Milwaukee. We've got the MMSD, the Milwaukee Metro Sewage District, and their Green Seams Program has been doing fantastic work over the past couple decades, right, of implementing protections to wetlands and investing public funds to protect them. Um, If that investment is now undermined because other people can fill wetlands, that are going to provide more floodwaters coming into the MMSD service area, that's going to be a major problem for us, and it just undermines all of these millions of dollars that have been invested in doing the um, wetland restorations.
4: Through the years we've talked about the DNR, who is our state agency, in more recent years has had less staff and less money to be monitoring and to to review applications for any number of things, including wetland projects, right? That probably isn't even a major question in what we're now facing because we're looking at just far less protection being out there for the DNR to monitor. Am I correct?
1: Well, the DNR still needs to spend staff time on these exemption requests. And actually uh, they have estimates that they've, they've provided in public records of how many hours uh, per each exemption request is required. So if they start getting hundreds of requests for exemptions, that is going to have an actual dollar amount attached to it in terms of DNR staff time to make sure that those are actual legitimate exemptions, and um, so it does have a fiscal impact. It's not like there isn't a a paper trail here. So it it's something that um, we were just looking at this this morning, actually, when with a DNR court filing where they. Uh, provided information previously on how many staff hours are spent on each of these exemption requests. The DNR documented that in 2020 they had to process 80 uh, wetland exemption requests. This was in response to the Trump era rule that uh, the DNR was concerned about at that point and they estimate their staff are spending three hours per exemption request. Um, So they calculated that out to a total cost for the year of $68,500. That was in response to a rule that now we think is going to be eclipsed by the new post-Sackett rule that will open up even more acres to potential exemption requests. So cumulatively, this could lead to quite a bit of staff time at the DNR in terms of processing these and making sure that the exemptions are li- being issued in cases where it's truly fitting the criteria that the state has established.
4: So the only, as of Sackett, the only wetlands in, in Wisconsin that would be protected are those that fall under obviously, federal protection. And those would be ones in which the connection between the wetland and the river or the lake, you can see it versus it being ephemeral.
1: So the Sackett
4: decision requires a continuous
1: surface connection with a traditional water of the United States, like a stream, river, lake, pond. The state does have additional wetlands rules. Okay. They have to be particularly small ones, less than an acre in an urban area, and they need to meet other criteria that the legislature has established. And project applicants need to go to the Federal Corps of Engineers and get an, a jurisdictional determination that the Corps lacks jurisdiction in order to even come to the DNR to request the exemption. Mm-hmm. The scientists who produced the maps in 2020 on the impact of the Trump era rule on wetlands in Wisconsin will hopefully be able to update those maps for us, for all of the public to see what the impact uh, post sacket will be on our wetlands. And then I think it's really up to state legislators to decide if they want to close this loophole and go back to uh, the 2001 program where Wisconsin was uniformly protecting all isolated wetlands and saw that that was a value to protecting the entire water system. Um, We have so many millions of dollars related to sports fishing in this state, for instance, that are dependent on isolated wetlands and ephemeral waters that are cleaning the water and cooling the water before it enters these spawning areas for the fish Um, that's something that i think people across the state have an interest in understanding how those things are connected and um, once we start focusing on water as a system and applying our regulations in a way that really protects that whole system, I think we'll be much better off as a society in terms of making sure that we are reducing flood risks, making sure that we have cleaner drinking water and that there are spawning areas for the fish of interest to people across the state. Not to mention, here we are in fall and we're seeing the fall bird migration uh, through the Milwaukee area and the Great Lakes, right? So these birds rely on ephemeral streams and wetlands, little pothole wetlands um, throughout the entire country. Uh, So what we do in terms of wetland protection ripples out, not just to humans, but to all of the animals that we are sharing this area with.
0: Melissa Scanlon is the director of the Center for Water Policy at uw Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences. You also heard from Rajpreet Greywall, a water policy specialist at the Center. They both spoke with WUWM's environmental reporter Susan Bentz. Scanlon is a panelist on a virtual symposium on wetland protection next week. You can find information on how to register for the free event at wuwm.com.
5: From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with JR Ross, editor of WisPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, JR. Thanks for joining me.
6: No, oh, anytime.
5: So much has happened in the past two weeks. Let's start with the Brewers Stadium funding developments. GOP lawmakers are pushing forward a bill that asks Milwaukee County and the city to cover about $200 million of the more than $700 million deal funding the stadium. What are the key points to know about this?
6: One, where are they going to find the votes in the Senate? And two, how are they going to change this package to make it more palatable to Milwaukee? And, so, and they're related. Looking at the Assembly, uh, Assembly Speaker Robin boss is behind the proposal or is on board with it, so it's an assumption that he can find the votes in his caucus to get that through. Remember, Republicans have a 64-35 majority there. They can lose 14 members will pass a bill because we're not seeing Democrats on board, especially Milwaukee, about the idea. The Senate, though, a little different story. Yes, Republicans have a two-thirds majority, but this is a tough vote for Republicans out state. You know, the backer is going to make the pitch that keeping the brewers means more uh, sales tax revenue for the state, which now goes into shared revenue, right? There's a, a connection there that means more sales taxes, more local aid for county municipalities. Still, it's kind of a tough vote. You're going to need Democrats, people think, to get this thing through. Well, the Democrats aren't going to board unless Milwaukee feels okay about it. And how do you make Milwaukee feel better? Well, a couple of challenges. One, don't forget that back this summer, an early version of the bill had about, $135 million from the city and county combined over 27 years. The price tag has gone up. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. One, Republicans had kind of tried to engage uh, local officials. They didn't really feel like they got much from them in terms of ideas how to fund it. So this is more like a, a leverage of like, look, this is what it could cost you. If you're not going to you know, play ball with us, sorry to say that, but if you're not going to help us with this, we might go for $200 million. Okay. So... The price tag could go down. It also depends on how they fund it, like the locals, right? So the city and county, could they bond for the money and pay it all up front and then have a smaller price tag overall? Well, the challenge is uh, interest rates are pretty high right now. And two, the city and county don't have really great uh, credit ratings. So that might be a, 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 not a very appealing option. Could the state give locals a loan, like a low-interest loan, and say, okay, here's your money up front? Um, you pay that and pay us back over time. Maybe they got to find something like that to be more palatable. Also, the bill as written now doesn't have a spot on the board overseeing the district for local officials. Republicans say, oh, we just take one or two from the governor, because right now it's four points from the governor, two each from the leader of the majority caucus in the each house legislature, and one from the team. Oh, we'll take one from the governor, maybe, or two from him, and that would be okay. Well, Milwaukee wants a voice I see the table to do this. Also for Milwaukee, they just got the sales tax money to address their pension costs, just got more shared revenue. Now you're going to come and ask for more money. That's going to be a challenge. And Democrats are looking for what can the brewers do they if a ticket tax has been raised. Brewers aren't thrilled that idea because the more expensive you make it to go to game, the fewer people might go. Don't forget, Milwaukee is in the smallest TV market in the league or one of the smallest markets in the league. They don't get as good a TV deal as... The Yankees, for example, they need butts in the seats. Also, they need uh, revenue from parking. The mayor flowed the idea of having some kind of a district, you know, use parking lots for a district. Well, the team talks about tailgating culture, but also that's revenue for the team. So what can the team do to make it more palatable as well? That's a big question. So lots of moving pieces and there's a sense of, oh, we get something done by the, this fall. Well, they break for the year in mid-November. so. That's a short window to move a big bill like this. It could be a challenge, especially if you don't get Democrats on board. Right now, Democrats are going, "We we're not there." You got to do something to make it more be- better for Milwaukee to get us on board.
5: The the GOP plan is about fourteen percent privately funded and about eighty six percent publicly funded. Why is that?
6: Uh You know, they're basing it off of how much revenue the state would lose if the brewers went away. So the state's component essentially is if you take the income tax off of players' salaries and personnel from the Brewers, as well as, it's called a jock tax. So if you're a visiting player from the Cubs or um, the Cardinals and you come into Milwaukee, you actually pay tax on what you earn for that game you play in uh, American Family Field. So they take that and say, look, this is our state contribution. We lose it anyway, let's put it toward our share. Um, the city and county, it's a little bit different story. Again, they talked about a smaller component before, but also it's tied to like a projection of, here's what you're getting off of the stadium uh, being there. If you don't do this, it would go away. So we should have some of this money going toward the stadium. The challenge for Milwaukee, for example, the Common Council, I think half the members put out a statement saying, look, we're still paying a million bucks a year or more toward the original cost of building the stadium. Now you want more money. So this is a challenge for them uh, to say the least.
5: And a key component of the bill that you've talked about is that Milwaukee sort of local contribution. Some are wondering why Milwaukee's suburban counties are exempt from the local contribution in the sense of Ozaukee and Waukesha counties would pay as much as, you know, far-flung areas of the state, and then Milwaukee County and the city would have to give up some of their shared revenue that they just got from the state. What are you hearing about these kind of equity arguments?
6: Go back to the mid-90s when they approved a five-county sales tax to originally build the stadium and put money aside for maintenance. There was a little recall election in Racine County <laughs> having to take out a state senator who who was against the plan but then voted for it in the end that paved the way for it to happen. There's a real blowback. If you try to implement that uh, sales tax again, for example, as five counties, you'd have a world of trouble. The team doesn't want that sales tax to come back. They're opposed to it. So. That wasn't an option, but that has been raised. Why isn't there a contribution from the surrounding communities? Because it isn't really like most people that came are from Milwaukee, the city proper, right? They're coming from around uh, the state, uh, around the region, but that's just not in the cards right now. And, you know, honestly, for any suburban Republican, that's an extra tough vote, right? Because it's, it's not in your county. How would you support that if they're trying to ask your constituents for money for a, a stadium in Milwaukee?
5: But what are you seeing as the response to the Milwaukee criticisms from people in Milwaukee that simply asking for the city and county to fork up two hundred million dollars to pay for this is just not feasible?
6: Uh, Republicans, you know, they they think they have time; they can negotiate something. You know, they're gonna they feel like they can get something done. The question is, what's it look like? Um, and quite frankly, that I've gotten feedback that the team could have done a better job of kind of selling this from day one of like how it would contribute to this or what its piece is. I don't mean to dismiss $100 million, but there are very wealthy people on the team. Um, In the uh, vein of bad timing, uh, one of the minority owners put up his home for sale in California for $75 million. That's not a great look when you're trying to convince people that you need public dollars to pay for a stadium maintenance, not construction, but stadium maintenance. Oh, by the way, the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, they're trying to build a stadium. It's half funded by the public, half by the team. Now that's constructing a stadium, right? This is maintenance. Uh, there are also concerns like how the deal exists. Right now, part of why we have to do this as taxpayers is we're obligated to. There's a contract that says this stadium board would keep now American Family Field in the upper quarter of ballparks in the league. You have to basically pay for upgrades to keep them kind of competitive with other places. There are some lawmakers who want that to go away. Like, that's driving some of these costs. It's not just about fixing the roof or taking care of the windows. It's become, you know, scoreboards and ribbon boards and all these kind of bells and whistles that people are like, why are taxpayers paying for that? So that's something to watch as well. Like, do they negotiate changes to the lease, the contract, so that it's not the way it's been for the last 25 years?
5: You're tuned into Capital Notes. I'm Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of whizpolitics.com. Moving on to the redistricting case developments. Um, In the last episode, we talked about the GOP's impeachment threats against Justice Protisiewicz, who they want off of redistricting cases before the court. Since then, at the behest of Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, the Assembly passed an Iowa-style redistricting reform plan that takes the power of drawing maps out of the hands of lawmakers and gives it to nonpartisan staff. Democratic Governor Evers has all but promised to veto the bill. What can you tell us about this?
6: Well, this is in some ways an off-ramp for Robin Voss from the impeachment talk. It's also a way to put Democrats on the defensive. So let's so talk Democrats first. If you've given Democrats this bill three years ago, they would have jumped at it. They would have said, this is great because it gives us a shot at a better map than what we're getting from Republicans. The thing, though, is they're going, but I'm going to get a better map from the Supreme Court. Now... You never want to assume what a court's going to do. But Democrats are thinking, okay, we've got the majority of this court for the first time. We have two lawsuits pending. Um, we see a path to a better map. Because if you draw a map right now based on geography, compactness, various um, you know factors, you would get still a pre-Republican map just because of the way people live in Wisconsin. At the same time, I can draw you a 50-50 Senate map in my sleep. It doesn't guarantee Democrats a majority. They give them the opportunity to, in the right environment, win enough seats to be the majority. I don't know they think they would get that from a nonpartisan commission. The assembly, you can't draw a 50-50 map there unless you gerrymander it for Democrats. Just the way people live, areas, it's just too tough. So Democrats are going, we've got a better shot from this court than from this commission. For Republicans, they know impeachment's not a great issue for them. They feel like it's a political loser. How do they get out of that box? Well, this is a way to do it, to say, look, if you give us this, we'll, we'll pass this bill, we'll go to this system. It short-circuits those lawsuits. We avoid uh, all these attorney's fees we're going to pay for lawyers on that. also avoids the $4 million being dropped on Republicans' heads right now as we speak in various ads, targeting on impeachment. Also, there are real questions if the Assembly has 50 votes to impeach Porto and then put it to the Senate. We are pretty sure from talking to Republicans in the Senate there aren't 22 votes among Republicans to remove her from office uh, in the Assembly. Could they get to 50? Maybe. So the challenge for Robin Voss is, if you look at his comments closely, he's always said, "I don't want to impeach which I want her to recuse from the case. If she steps off, this all goes away." Now, it may might go away in this case, but other cases that deal with election issues or political issues when would it stop? They would probably try to you know, pressure her to recuse in multiple cases. That's the size of the point. But for Voss, how do you have the impeachment box? Because if we get to impeachment, um, it could be challenged for him. So there's this thought that the worst case scenario for Robin Voss is, proto says, I'm hearing the case. The Supreme Court takes it, and the Senate hasn't acted on this redistricting bill yet. Then what do you do? Do you try to move forth impeachment? Oh, by the way, You've got a panel of three justices, not retired justices advising you if you can even you know, do it. You got questions about votes. So the, the problem for him is if sh- they take the case, she hears it and he has no grounds to impeach her or no support to do it, his leverage is gone then. So they're trying to find a way out of this situation um, and still come out on top with this case. Now, the court, if it takes this, uh, this case, if it rules, that these maps are invalid, if it puts better maps for Democrats, it's probably the last bit of the story. It'll probably be the U.S. Supreme Court, Republicans will challenge them, the U.S. Supreme Court on various grounds and see if they can get some there. But this is all about how, for Republicans, to get away from these new maps being in place in 2024 because they know or they fear the Supreme Court will give a map that it's going to really change the dynamic in the Capitol.
5: Wow. Well, thanks for filling us in on all these details, Jr. There's a lot to keep a hold of. That's happening in, in Madison and elsewhere in the state. And thanks for joining me on Capitol Notes.
6: Anytime.
0: That was WUWM's Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross of WISP Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. In about 20 minutes, we'll bring you the latest Sounds Like Milwaukee, a series where you share your favorite sounds in the community. But first, NASA astrophysicist and Wisconsin native, Michelle Thaler, joins us ahead of a talk at UWM, celebrating women in science. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, I'm Joy Powers. The Hubble Space Telescope, star matter, measuring the distance of space, and nearly all of the accomplishments we've worked toward in astronomy and astrophysics wouldn't be possible without the groundwork laid by women. Illuminating the work of these women is especially important to Michelle Thaller. She's an astrophysicist and the assistant director for science communication at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She's also a Wisconsin native who is returning to Milwaukee to give a presentation tomorrow night all about these hidden women and other space discoveries. Ahead of her talk, she joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski.
7: So you're giving a talk as a part of the Dean's Distinguished Lecture Series at UWM called Vast Spaces, Unimaginable Monsters and Hidden Women.
2: (laughs) That's
4: right. Now,
7: much like space, I'm sure the topics you could have dived into are incredibly vast. But can you share what inspired this talk?
2: Well, sure. Um, I have some of my favorite real monsters that we've been studying at NASA, and some of them are just mind-blowing. I mean, we we see these objects that are uh, incredibly high energy, incredibly violent, and they just don't even seem real. I mean, some of the things we'll talk about are uh, these dead stars called neutron stars. They're not, not black holes, but these other things. And they're so there's so much gravity, they bend space and time around them, and you can see behind them. And they're not—I mean, they're right there. They're in front of you. We study thousands of these things. And it doesn't seem real, but it is. And so I wanted an excuse to talk about some of my favorite monsters. But in sort of researching these and telling the story of these, it turns out that they were uh, were discovered by a young woman, a graduate student. And then there are other things like, you know, how fast is the universe expanding or how far away are the galaxies— and these were all things that uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that women astronomers really kind of laid the uh, the groundwork for all of this. And so it's a chance to sort of celebrate some of my favorite things to talk about and geek out about them, but also tell a story about how we, we often sort of discount that women were always there in astronomy and always doing really significant work.
7: Yeah. Historically, women are always there, always involved in some way, but aren't represented. That's and right. Do you feel like in the science community, because you're more in depth in that community yourself. (laughs) Is this starting to be more recognized?
2: Well, certainly I've seen a big change. Um, I mean, like in my career at NASA, um, I've seen so many more women now in the senior leadership and so many of the young men coming in that are really comfortable working with female colleagues and female bosses and all of that. So I've seen a, a really lovely cultural change um, I also was kind of surprised, like, when the movie uh, Hidden Figures came out about Langley Space Center and all of the women, many of them African-American women, who worked as mathematicians to compute all of the stuff that NASA needed. I knew that story because I'd been working at NASA and I knew about the computers, but all of a sudden I realized most people didn't. Right. And, and you know, most people didn't realize that if we had just sort of assigned, you know, culturally, African-American women are going to get us to the moon you know, they would have done it. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, the the idea that there there, there weren't these people there and they weren't important all the way through. Mm -hmm. Again, that was something that was hidden. And I I didn't realize quite how hidden it was.
7: Right. So we're going to talk about some people to bring them to light a little more. And to paraphrase a TED talk you did, uh, science is all about piecing together the story of where we came from bit by bit. And there are pivotal women who weren't as you said, widely credited in discovering our story. So we're going to talk about some of them and we're going to do a loose chronological order here. <laughs> uh, we're going to start with Henrietta Leavitt. Who was she and what major contribution to astronomy can we thank her for?
2: Well, sure. Henrietta Leavitt was an astronomer working at Harvard University and, um, and she wasn't the first one either. There was a whole group of women working there. And it went back to a time when the very first giant telescopes were being built. I mean, these were telescopes that were, say, 100 inches across, you know, the, the mirrors or finally with Mount Palomar, like 200 inches across. And we were taking these big photographs of the sky. And, 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 of course, there were all of these tiny, tiny little points that were the stars. And somebody needed to go through and classify them and, you know, make this into a catalog and make it make sense. And so there were women working on that. And Henrietta Leavitt was working around know, right about the turn of the last century, and uh, she was somebody who set up the idea that there there really were these different types of stars. She didn't even really understand why they, they had different types of light coming. Eventually, we did, and it began to be um, a way that we were able to find out the scale of the universe, really how big the universe was. She was the first person uh, through her work that was able to measure the distance to the the nearest galaxy dust, the Andromeda galaxy. And it's a whopping two million light years away, right? It takes like two million years to get there at 186,000 miles per second. So, you know, the idea that the scale of the universe and, and someone like like Hubble, we all think about the, the expansion of the universe being discovered by Edwin Hubble, but he wouldn't have been able to do that without the groundwork of these women.
7: Yeah, without knowing that here's the distance, here's how we measure it. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so next we have Cecilia payne Gaposchkin, And we can kind of like this is a general vast summary by me, a non-scientist, but <laughs> we can thank her for helping us understand exactly what star
2: stuff is, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it amazes people to know that just about 100 years ago, right, so Cecilia was working and starting to work in the 1920s. And when she was was first working as a graduate student at Harvard, she uh, was Cecilia Payne, and then she got married, and now it's Cecilia Payne-Gapachkin. But Cecilia was the first person, and again, a woman graduate student, you know, a young scientist uh, who realized what the stars were made of, and doesn't it kind of blow your mind that 100 years ago, we didn't know what the stars were made of? Yeah. The The idea at the time was that they were things like the Earth, they were big rocks. And honestly, if you had a rock that big, it would glow because I mean, just the gravity crushing it together would, would drive the temperature up. And so the, uh, the idea was that these things were basically big planets like the Earth. And uh, Cecilia looked very closely at the light that was coming from them and realized there was no way that that could be, given these observations. And it's one of these lovely stories where she publishes this doctoral dissertation. It's very short. It says, "Hey, look at this. they, they, <laughs> they, 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 they have to be made out of gas. They have to be made, be made out of uh, mostly hydrogen gas. and the the establishment kind of laughed at her for like a week. <laughs> and then they looked at it and said, "She's absolutely right. There's mm-hmm. no way it could be anything other. So you I mean, she's the person showed us that the stars are these big burning nuclear furnaces of hydrogen gas. And that sets up the stage for how every atom in our body is made. So she she starts to figure out really what the whole universe is made of.
7: Amazing. Um, but I imagine that backlash lasted beyond a week, right? What kind of things, obstacles did she face when trying to present this theory?
2: Well, she she actually faced plenty of obstacles in her life. I mean, she was uh, English originally, and she had tried to go to, I believe, Cambridge. I can, I can look that up. But, but they, they basically said, there's no place for you here. And so she went to uh, Harvard in the United States because they allowed her at least to come and study. The, um, the backlash to her discovery was honestly fairly quick because it was so brilliantly simple and compelling uh, that really, I mean, I mean, she, <laughs> she laid it all out. She said, look, if you look very carefully at the light and what we're learning about stars and how, how they emit light, this can't be a big rock.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, and sure enough, there was no way around it. So, I mean, it's a funny one where people were like, oh, ha, funny graduate student and then Oh, like, wait a yeah. Second. Oh, yeah. OK.
7: <laughs> I guess this makes sense. <laughs> so and we'll skip ahead a bit uh, to Nancy Grace Roman. She's also known as the mother of Hubble, and that title might give listeners a clue as to her accomplishments. But can you share more about Nancy here?
2: Well, that's right. I mean, again, we, we were talking about women who we didn't realize or at least that it wasn't so visible that they had major impact. I mean, we, we were just talking about Cecilia Payne. And so she became the chair of the Harvard uh, of astronomy department i mean the chair the head of the yeah. astronomy department and this was in the uh, you know the 1930s and 40s and then um Nancy Grace Roman was again a, a, an amazing astronomer that had gone to the University of Chicago uh, had tried to get a tenured professorship and they said no you know you're not you you're a woman basically it's kind of that obvious mm-hmm. and uh, and so she was hired by NASA in 1958 as the first head of astrophysics at NASA So think about that. You know, the very first time NASA has a head astronomer scientist, it's a woman. I mean, mean, Nancy was that good. They really wanted her. And she became the person that advocated for the idea of telescopes in space. Up above the atmosphere, You, the atmosphere absorbs lots of light and it, it, it distorts everything else. And so you get this wonderfully clear, real view of the universe when you go up into space. And Nancy was really the tireless advocate of that all the way through the Hubble Space Telescope and even up to the new James Webb Space Telescope.
7: And she's also the one to thank for taking the idea to reality of establishing NASA's program for space-based astronomical observations, yep. as you mentioned, first executive, like laying the foundation of you coming into NASA, being in a leadership position yourself. What's the, just a curious insider question, what's the culture at NASA in recognizing, you know, the women who were there before you?
2: At, at NASA, there was, you know, at least... Some attempt, uh, you know, I mean, when I, when I went to a government job, I was impressed by at least the conscious attempt to look at our numbers as to who we were hiring and how we were hiring them. And we found all kinds of problems, all kinds of uh, unconscious bias and conscious bias in the way that we were hiring people. And actually, you know, in, in fact, the, the James Webb Space Telescope, the one that, that just launched a little more than a year ago, um, it's the first telescope where the applications, like if anybody can use these telescopes. They're public. Mm. People don't know that. You can write in and you can say, I would like to use the web telescope to look at this. And then once a year, there's a big review panel that looks at everything and ranks them in terms of how good the quality of the proposal is. And in, uh, this is the first uh, observatory where we take all the names off. There's no, You have no idea who this proposal comes from. And that was a big deal because a lot of scientists, you know, justifiably have good reputations. You know, I wait, you know, I, I, I know how to do this. You know, I'm, I'm a talented person. I've been working on this for years. But no, I mean, it, it just has to come down to what you write and, and, and the, the argument you put forward. And so we have by far the most diverse selection now we've ever had. Uh, not just women, but uh, ethnicities, different nations. And, and uh, the one that I really love is uh, earlier career astronomers versus versus more later career. A lot of people were sort of, I think, kind of banking on, well, I've been doing this for decades. I know what I'm doing. So please give me the time. Yeah. And then w- when you actually have to write a good proposal. <laughs>
7: <laughs> that really sifts people out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So with part of your job, you oversee about four divisions at NASA, and you work to help bring them together to do better public outreach and education. How do you think more people can help build that connection of science and storytelling? Because you do a lot of that personally. You make presentations globally about vast different topics. What do you think is needed to help foster that connection a little better.
2: Oh, it's so hard. I mean I um I really sympathize with people that feel that science is not for them um because I was I was scared and intimidated pretty much all the way through my science education starting at college. I, I I did very well in science and I enjoyed it in high school. I remember going to uh uh you know science grab bag lectures at UWM and things like that. And then I got to college and I was just blown out of the water. I had no idea how to succeed in these classes. Um, I I didn't realize that a lot of the students had had a lot more math than I did coming here from the the, the Wisconsin public schools, which are great. But I didn't have the years of calculus that a lot of the kids did. And uh, I just took that all on myself that I must be an idiot. (laughs) And that was traumatic. But I loved astronomy and I didn't want to give it up. I don't know why it's taught the way it is. I think the the, the easiest thing I can say is it's very time consuming to teach somebody more one-on-one. And say, okay, how much of this do you understand now? And then, oh, hey, well, let's fill in this and and you know because you the, were
7: kind of left to be like, here's this, yeah. figure it out, right? Is <laughs> right. that a generalization exactly. of how you felt?
2: Exactly, and and I mean, I used to compare it to you know, I mean, science is is no more difficult than learning say a language. I mean, it, it's its own language, and you know, normally people don't say to you, it's like, well, you know. You could never learn Spanish, no matter how hard you try. There's no way you could learn Spanish. I mean, I mean some people are gifted at languages, some people are not, but with practice, I think everybody could become, you know, reasonably functional in Spanish. But what happens if you go into a classroom and the first day someone's just yelling at you in Spanish the whole time and daring right. daring you to figure it out. And I know the professors really do try. But I think to teach science, it's a personal thing as to how much you understand at a time and how much you're sort of getting at a time, and teaching it in a big lecture scenario. I mean, for for any kind of real detailed science, I just don't think it works very well. And that's hard, I mean, because professors don't have time, or, or, you know, we don't have the resources to teach it more one-on-one. But there's nothing complicated or difficult about it. It's just trying to teach it in a mass way, where you don't have somebody... I mean, teaching you something as almost more like an apprenticeship. It's like, you know, we're, we're going to do this until you get it. And, and of course you can get it. You know, there's nothing magical about this. I mean, anyone can learn this. But most of the time, students are kind of left to their own devices to figure it out. And that's hard. And I'm sorry about that. You know, I, I really wish people could take the time to teach it differently. How do you see your
7: work and what you do today as part of the effort to change that slowly?
2: Well, you know, I, I think I think as far as basic science goes, I think sometimes lectures can be could be very effective. So if you're just trying to teach a class to just to tell people, you know, what are stars made of? Where do we come from? How far away are the galaxies? Um, if, if you just sort of want to give a class to to tell the stories of how you are and how you relate to this larger universe, people think space is far away. That's just it's just hilarious. Because, I mean, astrophysics is, you know, w- why is there iron in your blood, right? Mm. And, and And why is there calcium in your bones? Um, astrophysics is incredibly intimate to how we as human beings are formed. Really, people have no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah,
7: that's not what I yeah. pictured. Yeah.
2: I mean, we um, we're retrieving uh, a sample from an asteroid next week. Uh, that we, we we went 200 million miles away to scoop up this pristine rock that uh, has uh, not been changed since the beginning of our solar system. And the uh, the group at Goddard Space Flight Center, you know, where I work, they've identified in similar specimens, similar asteroid specimens, all of the bases of our, our DNA and RNA. And we don't think that's a coincidence. We think that's probably where they came from. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea of how does that form in space, how do stars make the molecules? You know, I, I studied a, a, a star system in the Orion Nebula about 2,000 light years away that it actually forms more water. It, it, it forms molecules of water in a, in a very hot, gaseous form, but enough to fill the oceans of Earth 60 times a day. That's where water comes from. I mean, these molecules come from space. And so this idea of, you know, what are we and, and how did we get here? You know, I mean, astrophysics is everything that's going on around you. It's not just what happens above the atmosphere.
7: Well, and we have women to thank, like you and some of the women we talked about today, to help our understanding of this. So, Michelle, thank you so much for your
2: time. Well, it's been great to be here, and I, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing more people. You know, I, I, I just moved back, and I, I want to be part of the, uh, the astronomy community around here. Welcome back to Milwaukee. <laughs> thank you. Great to be back.
0: Michelle Thaller is an astrophysicist and the assistant director for science communication at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. She'll be presenting at UW-Milwaukee tomorrow night. Thaller joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. And you can find a link to more information at wuwm.com. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow wuwm on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Is there a sound in Milwaukee that used to bug you? That you've come to love? That's what the next Sounds Like Milwaukee is all about. You'll hear it next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. lake effect on 89.7 wuwm i'm joy powers before we close out today's show we'll hear a new episode of our series sounds like milwaukee we've been asking you to share your favorite sounds from the community like water lapping on the shores of lake michigan or the toll of church bells in your neighborhood wuwm's mayan silver brings you this week's edition starting with a submission from a local chamber music group
4: Hi there, this is Stephanie Jacob. I'm the pianist in the Prometheus Trio, and my favorite sound is when we're tuning right before we rehearse. And it's like all the possibilities. We're about to play all this beautiful music, but we haven't played it yet. And this is before we argue. I mean, my husband is the cellist and I'm the pianist, so of course we argue and our tolerant violinist just laughs at us. And we know that once we get through arguing, we're gonna have a really pretty good concert.
5: That submission is a fairly universal sound bringing to mind any symphony concert you've ever been to in the anticipation of hearing brahms beethoven stravinsky we're chugging along with our next submission
8: hi i'm tom mortensen
5: and where do you live and work
8: i live and work in walkers point
5: the screech of a freight train barreling through Milwaukee.
8: When we first moved down here, the trains were just something that we noticed right away. And then, you know, you add to that the traffic and, you know, other things you know, hear through the city. But, uh, but yeah, the trains were kind of like the main thing. And after a while, you just get used to it.
5: There are quieter Amtrak passenger trains plowing through the neighborhood. But there are also these freight trains and tankers transporting things like oil or chemicals. Those create more of a ruckus. And does the sound remind you of, like, anything else, or is it just totally unique?
8: Nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> no, it's kind of a love-hate thing. I mean, it, it can be really deafening. And uh, when I'm on, a phone, on the phone in the office here, I can hear it, you know? And so it's, it's something that, you, again, you just get used to it, but when it is loud, it is pretty ear-piercing.
5: There's some beauty to it. There's some irritation to it. It's kind of a mixed bag.
8: Nostalgia, you know, the history. It's, uh, you know, part of how we grew this nation, you know, and you can't deny that. And so it is kind of cool, you know, and I know as, as a kid, I always loved trains and looking at trains.
5: It's sort of like a feeling of people going places. Like you feel like you're at a crossroads.
8: Right. And, I, and, and the Amtrak is kind of cool because it has, you know, it rings the bell as it goes through. So it's always kind of like, a, you know, people are going to Chicago, they're using mass transit. Uh, there's a lot of Amtrak's that come through here during the day. So at least, you know, you know that that's a, a, a really nice resource that people are using.
5: So does it feel like home to you when you get back? Like, wh- like, have you ever stayed somewhere where it's super quiet? And is that kind of eerie to you?
8: It's, that's a great question because I've got a place up north and, you know, it's real quiet. We're out in the woods. And then uh, my girlfriend and I, whenever we come back to Milwaukee, we're like, we're home again. We always feel like coming home, there's just this really good energy that we get, and we just love living down here.
5: Tom Mortensen lives in Walker's Point. He sent in his recording of the freight trains, and earlier you heard from Stephanie Jacob of the Prometheus Trio. Send in your favorite sounds that make you think of home gets you where you're going, or otherwise. The instructions are at wuwm.com. My Ann Silver, 89.7
0: WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Sounds Like Milwaukee wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Join us again tomorrow at noon for Lake Effect. And be sure to listen all week long during our Driveway Moments member drive, where we're highlighting the stories that keep you listening to listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.